The Garden Question is a podcast for people that love designing, building, and growing smarter gardens that work. Listen in as we talk with successful garden designers, builders, and growers, discovering their stories along with how they think, work, and grow. This is your next step in creating a beautiful, year-round, environmentally connected, low-maintenance, and healthy, thriving outdoor space. It doesn't matter if you're a beginner or an expert, there will always be something inspiring when you listen to the Garden Question podcast. Hello, I'm your host, Craig McManus. Tony Gatoni believes there is always another way you can get it done with adaptive gardening tools and mindset. She believes that gardening is one of the healthiest activities for anyone. In this episode, we talk about how being resilient and resourceful are the keys to not giving up on your gardening adventure. We discuss when to start and who needs Tony's successful techniques in using adaptive gardening. Tony Gatoni is the author of the book, The Lifelong Gardener, Gardening with Ease and Joy in Any Age. Tony is a gardener and entrepreneur with a passion to help people become resilient in their garden in their everyday lives. She is a master gardener and frequently writes and speaks on topics of adaptive gardening and edible landscapes. This is episode 95, Adaptive Gardening with Tony Gatoni. You're invited to engage with us on Instagram at the Garden Question Podcast. If you'd like to email me directly, the address is question at thegardenquestion.com. That's question at thegardenquestion.com. Please remember, your ratings and reviews are always appreciated. Tony, gardening is a wonderful activity for us mentally and physically. Why should everyone garden? I think it's the joy that you derive from gardening. For me, I grew up in my grandfather's and my mother's backyard, watching the joy that they experienced as they were harvesting their zucchinis and picking their tomatoes and making salads with lettuce greens. That is a joy when you can take a minuscule little seed and grow food for your family. Beyond that, it's the beauty that you derive when you harvest your flowers, which is why in my garden, I combine edibles with ornamentals. I love that mixed bag approach. I've learned over the years how to mix the right edibles and ornamentals and herbs. We've all been through a lot the last couple of years. In the time of real stress and chaos, that's when I pick up my pruners and go outside to prune. Because when you're in front of that plant, there's nothing else you can think about besides that plant. That, to me, is the truest joy that you can derive from gardening. Gardening can bring a lot of aches and pains at any age. At some point in our life, it becomes more painful. Why is that the case? As we age, our bodies change. And there's really nothing you can do about that. It's just natural. What you can do, though, is to realize that what is going on for you today may not be your tomorrow. I encourage people to think about the future when they're talking about creating a garden so that they can incorporate vertical gardens and raise gardens up so that if they do have bad back, bad knees, then if they've raised up their gardens, they're going to be able to plant, tend, and harvest their gardens without incurring pain. You just mentioned a technique that you talk about a lot in your book, and that's adaptive gardening. What is adaptive gardening? 
Adaptive gardening offers hundreds of ideas for people to be able to adapt as we go along. I look at being able to adapt your garden for the long haul, for the sustainability, so that you can keep gardening for as long as you want. I divide it in three ways. It's a way to think about how you can adapt as a gardener, how you can modify and change how you garden and when you garden. That might be different as we get older. My husband and I used to go out on Saturday and Sunday and we could garden all day long. We could wake up the next morning and go back and do it again. We can't do that anymore. We've learned how to modify the amount of time that we garden. We dole it out in smaller pieces because we know we can't do it all in a day like we used to. The second part is how you can actually modify your garden, as I referred to a moment ago with elevating raised beds. The first raised bed that we put in was 10 inches high on the ground, and my back went out. My husband needed a knee replacement. That was tough. Walked by that raised bed and said, I hope you guys are doing okay because I can't get down to help you. That winter, we ended up taking that out and replacing it with an elevated bed that was waist high. There's lots of ideas of people, what they can do to raise their gardens up. Then the third part is about tools. I've looked at ways that you can modify your tools and adapt your tools. If there's a tool that you love, that it's your favorite tool, but it just doesn't work anymore because you've got arthritis in your hands or decreased muscle strength, there are things that you can do to adapt them so they will be comfortable for you. If all else fails, I can recommend tools that they can buy on the market that have been specifically designed to be ergonomic, to be comfortable. I suggest to people that if they're going to go out and buy a new tool, that they don't buy it online. They go to their local hardware store or nursery and ask the retailer if there's a particular tool that they're interested in, if they can take it out of the packaging. That way they can feel that tool in their hand and determine if it's going to be comfortable because a pruner is like the number one tool that you use over and over and over again. That's not comfortable. You're shooting yourself in the foot. Feel it in your hand and ask questions because there's pruners that are good for right-handed, left-handed, large hands, small hands. It's got to be comfortable got to be able to devote as much money to buy yourself a good quality pruner because you use it more than anything else. It allows them to think through what their physical challenges are or, or could be going forward so that they can adapt or change things now so they don't have to redo them later. What would be an example of adapting a tool that you already have? For example, I had to do this myself. I was planning to put in some seeds in the ground. This is before I got to the raised beds. I wanted to plant seeds, and I heard from a friend, well, have you got a piece of PVC sitting around? And we did, because we had put in some drip irrigation. I cut a piece of PVC waist high to the ground. This is what I call my no-bend seed planter. You use that PVC to make a furrow in your soil. Go back with the PVC where you want to put in a seed. You drop a seed and you move it the appropriate distance. Drop another seed so that you're planting your seeds without bending over. And then you can go back with that PVC pipe and just kind of cover it up with soil and you're done. 
You can do the same thing planting bulbs if indeed you have a PVC pipe that's wide enough. It costs pennies on the dollars. That's one of many adapted tools. Was there a particular event that led you to studying adaptive gardening? I'm Italian, and I inherited a lot of really wonderful things from my Italian mother. Two things weren't so great. Her bad back and the bunions. (laughs) Can't do anything about the bunions, right? But the bad back started putting me down. One time in particular, I was out of commission, literally, because I had my own company, for about three weeks in that I could barely walk. Mm. About the only thing I did was to go to doctor's offices. I'm laying on the sofa and I'm looking out my, my window at my garden and I'm thinking, oh my, it's January. This is the time of year when we, if it's not raining, when we prune our roses for the year. Thinking to myself, there's no way I could sit and prune roses right now. Suddenly a thought came into my mind of a newspaper article that I had found years ago and saved it for whatever reason. It was about adaptive gardening. Some master gardeners up in Washington State were going in and creating adaptive gardenings Hmm. for seniors. And I thought about it and I thought, well, okay. So I took another pain pill came to the other end of the house into my office, searched every drawer until I could find that article. Found it, went back to the sofa with my laptop, and I spent the last of the time recuperating, researching adaptive gardening. And then I had the epiphany that, you know what? I'm not the only one that's going through this. I look around at my master gardener chapter. I'd say at least two-thirds are over 60. And here in Marin County, where I live, nearly 25% of the population is over 65. I suddenly figured out that, hmm, maybe this is going to be my way of giving back to the community. Because as a master gardener, you're all supposed to find that project that you're passionate about that you think other people could learn from. So I started developing a seminar. The seminar here in the community led to me kind of going out on the circuit. When I was at the Northwest Flower and Garden Show, I presented this concept of adaptive gardening. And a week later, I was approached by an editor to write my book, The Lifelong Gardener. Garden with ease and joy at any age. And it literally, that phone call changed my life. (laughs) You hadn't been an author up to that point. No, she made me an offer I couldn't refuse. Yeah. She asked me if I was interested to turn my one-hour seminar into a 30,000-word book. I mean, I was at a loss for words, which doesn't happen for me very often, (laughs) but I knew I had to say yes, because I knew opportunities like that wouldn't come along very often in life, if at all. Sure, sure. So I said yes, and then I had to figure out how to write a book. (laughs) (laughs) As I was writing the book, thank goodness they helped uh, with editor, you know, whatnot. But it was a challenge, to say the least. Give us a little insight into the book. I think one of the things that people resonate about the book is the fact that I've interviewed real-life gardeners. Being a master gardener here, it allowed for me to know people pretty well and have been in their gardens. It was easy enough for me to say at meetings or whatever, gee, what do you struggle with in your garden? Sure enough, I started compiling these stories and interviewed them, brought out a photographer and photographed them in their garden and what it was like before and after they adapted it. 
That was where we went to bring to life. Even the tools, for example, we went to a local nursery. I wanted to get a photograph of some of these tools in use. And there was this one nursery owner who was really a lot of fun. And she kept checking, you know, how you girls doing? You know, can I help you with anything? And at one point I said, Annie, I have to tell you, I do have a complaint. She said, do? Why? What's going on? And I said, well, as a matter of fact, we're trying to get a photograph of this weeder by the Radius Tool Company, and you don't have any weeds. <laughs> and she just cracked up. She's, oh, okay, all right, all right, I'll see you girls later. You know. <laughs> so, you know, it's the real life aspect of gardening that people really appreciate about the book. What's one of the more memorable gardeners that you visited and an adaptive technique that they implemented or you captured? I think one in particular was my friend Joe Jennings. Joe lived around the corner from me, and he had flagstone paths. You know, we all got seduced into having winding flagstone paths throughout our garden. Mm -hmm. And he had that. But what he had put in between the flagstone was gravel. Mm. What he found was that all of his paths and even his patio were flagstone with gravel. And inevitably, somebody would come for dinner and their chair leg would fall into the gravel and they'd be unsteady. What clinched it was he had a permeable driveway put in those cement blocks with holes in between. And he had decomposed granite pounded in between those holes. Well, the dirty little secret about decomposed granite is that it flies away. And as much as he was trying to keep everything level and safe, sure enough, his wife had a book club meeting one night. One of her guests came and her heel caught on one of those stones and she went down. Oh, no. Joe ended up converting all of his hardscape from the front sidewalk to the patio in the back. He put in beautiful bluestone that was cemented in place. Mm -hmm. For his driveway, he put in integrated pavers. He made sure with that contractor that before he would let them go home, he would water each of those surfaces to make sure that it was level, that there wasn't going to be any accumulation of puddles or anything. There was never more than a half of an inch of a drop from hardscape to soil so that if he had to have a walker or if he had to be in a wheelchair, he wasn't going to have to redo one inch of all that hardscape. Now, you talk about resilience in your book. What do you mean by that? I think resilience helps people to understand that no matter what happens, there is a way to rise above it, if you will, because there's two kinds of pain. The one that hurts you and the one that helps you to change. Resilient people are not the kind of people that are going to sit around and say, why me? They're going to sit around and say, okay, this is what's happening. I might as well accept it because I can't change it. That being the case, what can I do? How can I adapt to this situation so that I can keep doing what I love to do without causing myself any kind of pain? That can be, whether it's physical issues, it could be cancer, an accident, any kind of tragedy, even a financial tragedy, can affect people in such a profound, deep way. 
And yet resilience, if they can exercise that resilience muscle and say, okay, again, starting with awareness, going into acceptance, and then finding that resilience, that's the end result that will bring people to be able to enjoy their garden and their life as much as possible. Is that what inspired you on the daily beatitudes you have? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It doesn't really matter when it comes to adaptive gardening, whether we're talking about the garden or we're talking about life. To be is the key in life. A funny story, my husband, his last name is King, Tim King. And I've always said to him that I'm the queen of doing and he's the king of being. We've always been able to share that little vignette there for a moment because I think it's true. As we get older, it's important to find ways to be. We don't have to keep doing. We don't have the energy in the first place. (laughs) So (laughs) why not find ways to be able to be in your garden without working on it? To be able to just be there for the beauty of it, for the joy of it, for the, the sense of fulfillment that you get, rather than constantly working on it. Everybody gets to that place in life sooner or later. And uh, adaptive gardening helped me to get there probably sooner than I was going to (laughs) if I had my own way about it. Does the type of plants that you choose and select for your garden, does that really make a difference in your adaptive gardening plan? Absolutely. From the standpoint that you want to have low maintenance whenever possible. I mean, look at it from the standpoint, as I referred to earlier, I used to be able to garden for six to eight hours at a time, days in a row. I can't do that anymore. So I have eliminated about half of my roses. I'm down to maybe only about five or six rose bushes now because they tend to be higher maintenance, tend to get black spot. One year, I think I had to deleaf my roses three times and apply horticultural oil. And I'm like, really? I kept looking at those roses going, you're not long for this world. Once more and you're out. (laughs) Uh, A couple of them that didn't are no longer with me. Put the emphasis on trees, shrubs, perennials. I don't use a lot of annuals, except for when I really need that shock of color to be interplanted. I use a lot of succulents because they're super, super easy. Definitely fits in <laughs> looking for low-maintenance plants that, in our case in California, are drought-resistant. So you want to have more native plants so that you water them really well that first year, and then second and subsequent years, you won't have to water as often. How do you start your garden day? The first thing I suggest to people is that they warm it up. Get your body warmed up before you go outside, whether it's doing yoga, tai chi, stretching. I've got seven or eight exercises in the book that were specifically chosen for gardeners to get their bodies warmed up. I even tell people to turn on some of their favorite music. I mean, if it's the Rolling Stones or the Beatles or whatever their favorite rock and roll music is, to dance for five minutes before you go out there. Then you're not as apt to hurt yourself than if your muscles are cold. Once you're out there, switch it up. What I mean by that is to not do the same activity for long periods of time. We've got an awful lot of leaves out there right now. 
and tomorrow it's expected to be dry. So I know I've got a lot of raking to do, but I also know to incorporate what I call the 20-20-20 rule. In other words, don't rake for more than 20 minutes at a time. Put the rake down and do something else. Maybe that you're reaching up to prune a, a flowering shrub. Do that for a while. Switch and maybe go down on your knees if you can and do some weeding because it's the repetitive movement that tends to get you in trouble. That's what creates the pain. Overuse over and over and over again. Of the same muscle group. So switch it up so that you're using different muscle groups for the different chores in your garden. That makes sense. What is your favorite go-to tool that you're using? My pruner, of course, is the first that I always grab. I always grab my soil scoop. I always start with my ironwood tool sharpener because I think it is the best sharpener that's on the market. It's important. I talk to audiences and I'll ask them, when was the last time you sharpened your tools? And I'm amazed that there's maybe a quarter of the audience will raise their hands. The rest of them don't even bother to sharpen their tools. Beyond the pruner, the soil scoop, and the sharpener, there is now a ratchet pruner that I've been using that, oh my gosh, makes all the difference in the world. Because again, it's getting back to that decrease of muscle strength in your hands. This ratchet pruner by Ironwood allows for you to cut a branch that's up to maybe an inch and a half in diameter. Because it's got a six-stage ratchet, you can literally keep moving it and moving it, and it makes the most beautiful cut, has made all the difference in the world with the pruning that we've been doing in our garden in this last year. Is that like long-handle lopping shears, or is this a handheld? I'm short, so long tools tend to be heavy, and I want to be able to get in there closer. This ratchet, it's a pruner, is only maybe, I'm going to say, 13 inches long. It's lightweight. It really allows for me to use it over a longer period of time without getting muscle strain. You're building up those little efforts into a big effort over time. That's a good way to look at it, yeah. (laughs) What can gardeners do to adapt to these new techniques? I think more than anything else is to be able to look at when you're going to go out to garden to anticipate what you're going to be needing. First of all, to save energy so you don't have to keep going back to your garage 12 times. To buy yourself really good gloves. I have three different kinds of gloves. One of them is a very thin glove that I can do deadheading and feel the difference between a live leaf and a dead leaf. Secondarily, I always have gauntlet gloves. These are the gloves that come up to my elbow. These are the gloves that I wear when I'm pruning my roses, the lemon trees, or anything that's got thorns. I always have my gauntlets on. Third part is just a real good sturdy work glove so that when I am digging or doing heavier work, I've got gloves that'll protect my hands. The gauntlet glove and the work glove have this amazing padding built into just the right places where you're going to be holding a tool so that your hands won't get fatigued. Mm -hmm. You got a pair of gloves, you're looking at the glove, and it's always this finger. It's always the index finger that's the first one to break, right? Or wear through. (laughs) Or wear through, of course. Well, this brand of gloves that I love is by Fox Gloves. She put an extra piece of material over the fingertip. So it reinforces the most vulnerable spot on the glove. 
It's a smart tool that can make all the difference from people being able to protect themselves. Greg, have you yet experienced going out into the garden and let's say you get caught by a, a rose bush thorn? You get those funny looking purple marks on your arm? Yeah. They're funny looking purple marks. They don't hurt, but they take a long time to heal. The name of those purple marks are called senile purpurea. Really? You know, couldn't they have come up with something that's a little <laughs> bit less discouraging than senile purpurea? That is their name. And all I can say is that if you get in the habit of having a good pair of gauntlets, that will drastically reduce the number of those funny looking purple marks you get on your hands <laughs> and your arms. <laughs> What do you wish people would do differently when designing, building, or growing a garden? Well, I think it's really important that they just think about their future. None of us knows what tomorrow holds. God forbid you'd have to be in a walker or a wheelchair. Why not build your hardscape of your garden for easy accessibility? So no matter what happens, or for that matter, you have a friend or a family member that comes over that wants to see your garden. But it's not accessible because of their being in a wheelchair. If you can think that through with accessibility and with vertical garden opportunities so you can stand up to do the work, then I think it'll be a garden that they can conceivably work in for many, many years to come. What's a garden myth you'd like to smash? Oh, I smashed one a long time ago. My dad used to tell me that you put a nickel plant into a dime hole. And I used to look at him like, what are you talking about? What he meant was a small plant into a larger hole. His attitude was twice as wide and twice as deep. Well, I understood the concept of twice as wide. You want those roots to go out this way. But twice as deep, do you know how many plants I lost? Because they settled. <laughs> mm -hmm. All that fresh soil underneath, the plants just settled down and the plants died. And that's when I decided I think I'll become a master gardener. So I could dispel some garden myths like that one and, and really learn the, the research from the University of California. That's wise, yes. <laughs> what is your earliest garden memory? You know, I immediately flash back to my grandfather's backyard on the south side of Chicago. It was so pristine. It was so perfect. That's where I developed my love of roses. If he had one, he must have had 30 rose bushes. He never got diseases. I never saw a black spot. I never saw any problems in his garden. His lawn, it was like you could see each individual blade. It was like he combed his lawn. I mean, it was extraordinary. I used to see his vegetables and his tomatoes and his basil and his corn. I mean, I've never seen such a pristine garden as what he used to keep. Remember seeing the joy on his face when he won the Chicago Tribune Backyard Contest. <laughs> he was over the moon in love with gardening. Wow. And that left me with such a deep profound love. It was like, I want to do that when I grow up. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, that was that was grandpa. Yeah. What do you think his secret was? He used manure for everything. That was one thing. He was a patient gardener. He was a very soft, kind, very sweet man. 
I used to hear him talk to his roses. I don't know if he talked to his corn on the cob, but his roses, he called each one by its name. That's how he would introduce Mr. Lincoln, first prize. I remember the time he put in a white rose by the name of Honor. And no matter how he pruned it, this rose wanted to be different. It had long hybrid branches. The white was so stunning. He so loved it. I used to watch his face just light up when he was talking about his roses. It just left an indelible memory for me, one that I'm always going to cherish. This goes to show that you get a healthy soil because you usually don't have a problem if you grow healthy plants. And I would think that manure would have contributed tremendously to the soil condition. I didn't care for the smell, but what are you going to (laughs) do? Yeah, we won't go into that summer. I spread chicken manure all over Mm -hmm. the place. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Just don't have a barbecue a couple of days later. Just, you know, let it. Or the neighbors have a barbecue. (laughs) I hear you. You're not going to win any friends. Spreading manure in the summer. (laughs) (laughs) Well, tell us a funny garden story. Flashback to, gosh, it must have been 20 years ago now, where we decided to take up our lawn. This was probably one of the first droughts that we had, and it was pretty serious. We had just bought this house, and there was a lawn, but it was never very pretty anyway. We took it up, and this is when we started putting in that winding flagstone path. Some friends came over to help us. Here's four of us trying to put in a length that was probably, what, 30 feet long and about five feet wide. After a while, as tired as we were, we'd say, okay, Tim, we need a stone the shape of Kentucky. So go look at all the stones that we've got standing up against all the walls and the hedges. Find something that looks like Kentucky. And you know, it worked. I mean, laughter helped us through that. It really helped us. I mean, it, at one point, Tim looked at me and said, I can't find Kentucky, but I got a great Ohio over here. Anytime <laughs> you need it, you know. <laughs> Finding laughter through the work that got us through it, and that and a few beers afterwards really helped. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What's your most valuable garden mistake? I told you about the first raised bed that I put in that was 10 inches off the ground. Well, the first elevated raised bed that I purchased in place of that raised bed that was on the ground, I didn't think anything of it. I cleared an area, put it down, I situated it, started adding the soil to it. Then a couple of months, that puppy had sunk about six or seven inches. Learned for future elevated raised beds that first you put a good stone block or brick, then you're not going to have that shrinkage down into the soil. I learned that the hard way. And every time I go out there and I have to bend over to tend that elevated raised bed, I'm like, do I take it all the soil out and start over? And it's like, oh, I don't know if I want to do that. We just kind of accept what we have and go forward. So the legs were just literally sinking into your existing soil. Yep. Mm, Good tip. (laughs) Good tip. Yeah. (laughs) Plan ahead. (laughs) I would like for you to complete this statement. In my garden, I have. In my garden, I have adapted it for our own comfort and ease. We have one, two, three, four elevated raised beds, a pergola, arbors, trellises, window boxes, wall planters, and maybe two dozen containers, all designed to be able to help us to garden with ease. Most recently, I bought a veggie pod. 
A veggie pod is this really cool elevated raised bed. It's actually higher than the waist. It's on wheels. What makes it work so well is that it has a canopy that comes down over the bed that the rain can get through, the sun can get through, but the squirrels and the pests cannot. Hmm. Once I got this veggie pod, it is the first time, I shouldn't admit this, but I will, (laughs) it is the first time that I was ever 100% successful growing my veggie garden from seed because we have such active squirrels out here. We have tree rats. I put in seeds and those little seedlings come up and they're eaten. And when I first got the veggie pod, I put in a lot of seeds because I thought, oh, we'll see if this is going to work or not. I was blown away by how much we could grow because it's being protected. Made all the difference in the world, especially with salad greens, but even the broccoli beets. They would eat anything. Uh, We have some very hungry squirrels out here. I do not know why. I don't want to kill them. Give them something else, but not my veggies. (laughs) Been in a drought. They're wanting those vegetables because they've got moisture in them and they're trying to hydrate themselves. We have two bird baths, two fountains, one of which I can watch from my office and see the birds come into this fountain to see them playing in that fountain as the water's gurgling over. It's about four feet tall. To see the birds taking baths in those fountains is like, oh, this is the berries. (laughs) (laughs) It's really fun to have Mother Nature come and take advantage of the gifts that you give them in the garden. Yeah, Very cool. What's your future plans for your garden? About a year ago, I became a member of the local Master Gardener chapter, their Fire Smart Landscaping Committee. The West Coast has just been inundated with fires. It started really bad in 2015. Each year, it tends to get worse. Fires are more intense and more destructive. Join this committee to learn about it myself with the hope that I could start teaching it as well. The cynicism that comes from people, their eyes glaze over and they go, yeah, fire smart landscaping, uh-huh, right. You can't tell me there's anything I can do in my garden that's going to stop a wildfire coming through. Some extent that's true, but what you can do, if it's a massive fire, just learn your evacuation route and get out of Dodge, right? Mm -hmm. But if there's a fire even a couple of miles away, if you realize that 60 to 70% of the homes that were lost in fires were lost from burning from the inside out, and you're going to say, what do you mean by that? Here's the deal. If there's a fire a couple of miles away, you probably don't have to be so worried that a fire will break out and and spread to your area. It's not so much the direct contact. It's not so much the heat. It's the embers that can fly for miles and come into your home through attic vents or foundation vents. That's called hardening your home. When you replace those vents with vents that are no more than an eighth of an inch, that has proven that embers can't get in to burn your house from the inside out. Additionally, we try to tell people, keep your gutters free of leaves. We've added gutter guards on all of ours. The words that I use to describe adapting your landscape to be fire smart is to work towards that goal because it's not something that's going to happen overnight. People have established gardens. They love their foundation plants. Foundation plants, if they've got a lot of resin or if they're oily, if an ember should fly, those plants are going to go up and will burn your home. It's a big task. What we're working towards this year 
is to first focus in on the first five feet all the way around the house. That's where you want to have inorganic material. Gravel, pebbles, stone, no wooden benches, no trees right next to your house. We took out three Italian cypress that I love. Come to find out, the fire department calls them Roman candles because they go up so quickly. These three trees were right next to our roof. If you have any kind of green goods, they need to be very low growing. Or if you do have any plants, an inorganic pot, you know, in other words, not a a wine barrel, a terracotta pot or ceramic pot with plants in them, that's allowed in the first five feet. Beyond that, it's a matter of making sure that you don't have trees right next to your house in that first five feet. And that's considered zone zero. Zone one is five feet to 10 feet. And that's where if you have trees that are still standing and you want to keep them, you need to prune up six feet from the ground. Make sure that you don't have too many trees next to each other. You want to have space in between. If you have a tree and some shrubs, maybe move those shrubs away from the tree so that you've got space in between each of those shrubs and trees. What plant are you in love with this week? My succulents. (laughs) (laughs) My succulents are going off the chart, sending out flowers and pups that I can't wait for it to stop raining so I could go out and start gathering uh, those pups and do some propagating to spread them. Yeah, no, they're just, succulents are the plant that just keeps giving. You got a favorite one of those? I've got some aloes out there that are just breathtaking, sending out these gorgeous orange and green flowers that are so vibrant, so beautiful. People will stop because we've got some aloes along on our street strip, and they'll stop and say, what is that plant? Because it's just so dramatic at this time of year. It's, it's really kind of fun. You've got your first book out, and it's very popular. What have you got coming next? I'm really excited and filled with such a, a degree of passion. I can't begin to tell you how exciting it is to be working on my second book. It's a book specifically about my mom. It's a narrative nonfiction book, and it's about love and loss, letting go. Because she was such a great cook, each of the chapters ends with one of her recipes. I'm really excited because the working title is Recipes of Love, Life, and Lasagna. (laughs) (laughs) It's so rich with emails that went back and forth when my mom suffered a massive stroke. And we have so many stories about her that we continue to share. It's really going to be fun to be able to share the love and the recipes with people. Yeah, I'm excited, as you can tell. Can you give us just a little bit of preview or a story that we might see in your book? Sure. After my mom passed, I had a dream. She invited me to heaven to help her plant her garden. She was 35 years old and looked so beautiful. It kind of took me aback. And I said, okay, so I'm here to help you plant a garden. I said, so how does that work, mom? Do we go to the nursery? And she said, honey, this is heaven. All you have to do is think about what plants you want. And they appear. I said, well, that's really cool. Well, what do you want? So she started naming the plants that she used to grow back in Chicago. And suddenly they just appeared. 
I said, okay, so have you got a shovel? She said, Tony, this is heaven. You don't need a shovel. She just picked up a plant with her finger and pointed to an area, and it was just planted. And I said, well, that's really cool. This is a real dream. This is not something I made up. I said, okay, but don't we need to get down on the ground and tampen the soil and make sure God got it right? And she looked at me. She said, sure. Both got down on her hands and knees, tamping down the soil. And then she put her hand on mine. She said, okay, honey, it's time for you to go. I said, I don't want to go. She said, it's okay. You can come back. Next thing I knew, I was flying through the cosmos. I could feel cold air and warm air on my body. I was like electrified. I felt like I was a bumblebee. I just planted a garden in heaven. And I woke up sitting up in bed next to my husband. I had to write it down instantly, which is how I remember it so vividly. But a number of dreams happened with her, but that was the most vivid that I had. What a wonderful dream. Thank you. Thank you. I look forward to the book. <laughs> I think it's going to be uh, very heartwarming. And if you've never had Sicilian cream cake, I just made Sicilian cream cake for the first time for my granddaughter for Christmas. And she looked at me after having one bite and said, Grandma, this is now my favorite birthday cake ever. Will you make this for me every year? I mean, it is so rich. It's got coconut and pecan and it's made with buttermilk. I mean, it's like dying and going to heaven just to have a bite of it. So, Is that the recipe that's going to match up with that story? You bet. Oh, boy. <laughs> Not to mention her pizza and ravioli and spaghetti and lasagna and brujol. I mean, you name it, it's in there. It's going to be great. <laughs> oh, wow. That's going to be great. That's going to be a great book. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. I look forward to it. When's your target to publish it? This year, for sure. We'll look forward to it. Do you have any final thoughts for us? The one thing that I want to leave your listeners, for them to think of themselves as a tree, because trees can be shaken by strong winds and by the change of season. They're able to get through it because they're strong. They're able to adapt to any situation. It's kind of how I look at gardening and life. What can you do to have that resilience so that you can be strong. No matter what should happen, whatever comes your way, you will then be able to bend with that situation and get through it. Tony, tell us how people may connect with you. I've really tried to make it easy. My website and my social media platforms all have my name. Website is TonyGatoni.com, Instagram.com forward slash Tony Gatoni. That's the same for all of them. My email is Tony at TonyGatoni.com. <laughs> and even my Amazon store, where I have cultivated a huge collection of recommended tools and gloves and products that I recommend to people, is the Amazon.com forward slash shop forward slash, you guessed it, Tony Gatoni. This has been episode 95, Adaptive Gardening with Tony Gatoni. Thank you, Tony. You're awesome. The goal is that every episode is valuable and well worth your time. Please generously share the Garden Question podcast with your friends, relatives, and neighbors. Check out our website, thegardenquestion.com, for links, resources, and where you can listen to every episode again and again. You will not want to miss a weekly episode, so please subscribe to the Garden Question podcast with Craig McManus on your favorite listening app. Keep on designing, building, and growing a smarter garden that works.